Grab your copy of God's Word this morning and be able to turn over to the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30 and 36 through 43. Martha Harold always makes me think of my mom. She remember when I was a little child her telling me that until she was about 13, she thought it was part of the Harry Angels thing. <laughs> I thought, as a four-year-old, that was the most hilarious thing I'd ever heard. I always think of that. And that Mark chapter, Matthew chapter 13, this morning, look at verses 24 through 30, and then we'll flip over to verses 36 through 43, where... Jesus then explains this parable of the weeds or the tares, depending on what version of the Bible we have for you this morning. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we do come before you with quietness this morning. Pray where there is not quietness in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls, that you would still them. Our ears might be opened, our eyes might see the glories that are laid before us in your word. Pray that you wouldn't quiet the noise of the world in our ears, that you would find our spirits that stir up with the things of the day or the things of yesterday or the things of tomorrow. We would find that there is just much rest presence today. And that as we leave this place, we know that we have heard from you. Living through God chooses to speak to us. Speak to us, we pray. In Christ's holy name. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. This is the holy and error word of God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said, Then, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the weeds along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, Bind them in bundles to be burned. Gather the weeds into my barn. And over the to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. 
The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So the grass withers, the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Read God. Amen. Now notice, this is very similar parable of the weeds or the parable of the tares that follows the parable of the sower or the parable of the seeds and in each of these parables you have a man that goes out and he sows seed in a field. In the parable of the weeds here he goes and he sows good seed in the field and as he sows good seed in the field and then he retires at night while his servants are resting and an enemy goes out into that same field, and he sows seeds of weeds in that field, or seeds of tares. And as time passes, those two seeds begin to sprout, and the weeds and the wheat, they begin to grow up together. And they look very similar to the point that in many ways they are indistinguishable. But as they continue to grow, it becomes apparent that there are both weeds and there are both wheat in this field. This master, he has good servants, he has good workers, and they notice in time that these weeds have grown up alongside the weeds in this field. So they want to remove the weeds. So they go running to the master and they ask him, why is it that there are these weeds in the field? And the master is very clear. He tells them, an enemy has sowed these weeds in the field. And so, as good servants, they want to remove the weeds from the field. The master tells them no. He tells them that they must wait. Parable is not difficult to understand. Jesus will give a very clear explanation of it as the disciples come to him as they did after the parable of the sower and the parable of the seeds, the soils, they come to him again and they ask for clarity on this parable. And so Jesus gives them an explanation of this parable and was like, why do you need a preacher? He tells us what it says. As Jesus goes through it, he says this. He says the parable of the the weeds here is very similar to the parable of the sower in that the man goes out and the man is the son of man, is Jesus himself. The field, he says, is the world. He says the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. You'll notice that they're different in the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils and the parable of the weeds. And the good seed in the parable of the sower was the word of God that went out. Whereas in the parable of the weeds, the good seed are those who actually receive the word of God. This is a good thing to notice about scripture is that the same word 
not always refer to the same thing. That can be an interpretive fallacy to say this word only means this one thing, and so as it meant in that passage, so it must mean in this passage. No, this, this parable follows the other parable, and right on its heels, the seed means different things, and the first is the word that goes forth, and the second is those that receive the word, or the good seed. Jesus tells us that the weeds themselves are the sons of the devil. The enemy is the devil who sowed them in the world. And the harvest, Jesus tells us, is the end of the age. And the reapers that come at the end of the age to reap the harvest are the angels that Jesus himself sends out. It's pretty straightforward. You almost don't need a preacher. Yet, the message of this parable can be lost often is. I hear it in questions that are kind of loved at Christianity or that are loved at Christians. How can evil persist in this world if there is a good God is the question. Why doesn't God seem to care? Maybe we think about our own lives. We think, oh, get another trial. Another tragedy, another suffering, another fall, another success of evil in this world. Does Christ actually reign? Or maybe all of this kingdom stuff, all of this that we hear about Christ as king and, and this kingdom, maybe all of that is just future. <laughs> Christians that wandered into that air. Say most Christians, or many of us, will not say that the kingdom is all future, and that Christ's reign is all future, and yet we live agnostically, or maybe even atheistically, in regards to the kingdom being present now. Very little of it. Tired of evil, tired of trials, and we want to know why why can't there be an end to all this suffering now? This parable, it gets at those questions. This parable informs us about the kingdom. Three points from the text this morning in an effort to help us understand the kingdom of Christ. So our first point this morning, Christ's kingdom is not absent, it is present. And Christ, as the king of the kingdom, is not feeble, he is patient. So our first point, Christ kingdom is not absent, it is present, and Christ as the king of this kingdom is not feeble, he is patient. This is a problem that's facing the disciples here, and that's facing the, the workers in this parable. Hasn't the kingdom come? Clearly it has come, and if it has come, should the fields be rid of the weeds? Should we get rid of the weeds that are in the field, the evil that is here? Kingdom's come. Kingdom's present. Think about the Jews. The Jews have this expectation that when the Messiah came into the world, that finally all the evils that had oppressed them, all the trials that they had endured as the covenant people of God would end. Because God's kingdom was now present. And there would be justice. There would be all things set right. 
when John the Baptist is sitting in prison and, and he doesn't quite see what he expects to see at that point. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, Are you the one or should we wait for another? This isn't what we expected. You expect that as the king comes, that surely the, the wicked would be separated from the righteous. There was a bank that was that was being held up, and there were thieves in that bank that had taken bank customers as hostages. And then the police showed up, and those thieves in that bank are making their demands, and they want $10 million, and they want that jet to Bora Bora. They're not releasing any of the hostages to the kids. But then the police break in. And make a breach. And they take over the bank. What do you expect to happen? We expect the very first thing is that they would separate the thieves from the people that are innocent. That's what you expect because law and order has come in. Righteousness has won. The evil of the thieves has been set back. You, you would expect that. The right expectation, the bad seed, being separated from the good seed. Notice the problem presented between the servants and the master in the parable was not one of who was to separate the wheat and the weeds, nor how they were to separate the wheat from the weeds, or what kind of separation there was to occur between the wheat and the weeds, but when, when it should happen. That was the issue. The servants want the wheat and the weeds to be separated immediately, now. The master says, no. Wait. And wait. And wait until the day of the harvest. Jesus interprets his own parable here. It's still been interpreted in different ways throughout church history. Maybe that's so preachers feel some job security. Because he gives the explanation. Some have understood this separation here to refer to believers and unbelievers within the church. Augustine is famous for this. Calvin will follow upon his heels, and many of the reformers will do the same, and they will interpret it in the way that Augustine did. Augustine understood this to be a parable of the church, and that within the church you have both the, the weeds and you have the weeds. You have both the unconverted and you have the converted. And that there's, there's quite a history here for Augustine. Augustine, at this time, there were what were called the Donatists in the history of the church. Remember, maybe in the 3rd and 4th century, there was a, a wicked emperor of the Roman Empire by the name of Diocletian, and Diocletian wanted to stamp out Christianity in the world. And so Diocletian will, will persecute the Christian church, he will destroy churches, and he will begin to murder Christians all over the Roman Empire. And as this is happening, Christians will begin to deny Christ. Any of the 
pastors at the time, the only thing they had to do was, if they would just hand over their copy of the scriptures over to the Roman soldiers, the Roman soldiers would allow them alone, because it was a, it was a way of saying, we will no longer believe it. We don't claim Christ anymore. Now, at when the persecution ends, there will be many of those people that were in the church that now want to return to the church. <laughs> Ones that had denied Christ, that denied the Christian faith. And the Donatists would say no, that they have no right to come back within the church. They denied Christ and the church is to be pure. The church is a place for saints, not for sinners. We're not allowing them back in. And any pastor that would seek to administer the sacraments that has been unfaithful, well, the efficacy of those sacraments is ruined. You don't want to receive the sacrament from such a pastor. Augustine will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these Donatists, and he will argue, no, that the church is made up of wheat and of tares. There are those that are going to be unbelieving within the visible church, and those that are believing within the visible church, and they will grow up next to one another. But we cannot be too ruthless in church discipline, because if you are, you may uproot some of the wheat. You can't be harsh with that community. Calvin will follow this as well as will many of the reformers. Calvin and Augustine and obviously the reformers will believe wholeheartedly in church discipline. They just don't want to see it exercised ruthlessly in the church, trying to make the church this absolutely pure body. Augustine would say, he would say, how do you not know that one of those tares will become a weed? There is, of course, to be some sympathy with such a view. Be sympathetic that we don't want to be too harsh in church discipline, that we can't root out all wickedness within the church, that we can't. Make it purely a body of saints. No, this is a body mixed up with saints and sinners. The visible church is always mixed. It's true, so we have to be careful in a mixed church, not to be too ruthless and disciplined. It's a fair point, but it's not the point of this parable. It's not what this parable speaks. Here, I'll shake you ground if you disagree with Augustine and Calvin. I think we're on good ground because we agree with Christ. Christ is clear. Jesus says the field is the world. Church. It's the world. And in the world, he says, there are sons of God and there are sons of Satan. Jesus' point here is in the world, you will have the sons of God that are scattered throughout the world, and as they are scattered throughout the world, so Satan will scatter his kingdom of darkness throughout the world. And that is why it often appears as if the kingdom is not present. But it is. It's present. Interesting that 
doesn't make a distinction between the kingdom now and the kingdom in the future. It doesn't treat them as two different kingdoms, as two different realities. They're one and the same. There's one kingdom because there's one king. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom that is present in this world. The kingdom of God is the kingdom that is present in this world. There's one divine will, one king, one kingdom, one work of God. It has, is, shall be accomplished. Promised kingdom is fulfilled, and yet the kingdom is still to come. It is both a present reality and a future reality. Theologians often say it, it is here, but not yet. It's present. But it's not fully consummated. The kingdom of Christ is in our midst. But we don't see it in all of its full glory until he returns. Think of it like this. With the coming of Christ, the kingdom of darkness ruled. Satan was the prince of this world, as Paul says, the prince of the power of the air. But with the coming of Christ, in this darkness, the kingdom of heaven reaches in. That which is to come came. And the kingdom of light makes its entrance into this world and pushes back the kingdom of darkness. If you just think about Satan, it's very clear in the Gospels with Satan. You remember in Matthew 12 that when the Pharisees came to Jesus after he healed that blind and deaf and mute man, that when Jesus had cast the demon out of him, and the Pharisees accused Jesus of being in league with Satan, you remember his reply? He said, no, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he said, the strong men of the house must first be bound. He's speaking of Satan. That in his coming, he binds the strong man of the house. Satan is bound. He is victory, Jesus does, over Satan. And yet, Satan still has power in this world. In Luke 22, Jesus tells Peter that Satan demanded to have Peter that he might sift him like wheat. But Jesus says that he prayed for Peter. That his faith would not fail. He prays because Satan is active in this world. The kingdom of darkness still labors. So does Christ. Prays for Peter so he's not sifted like Satan is still active, though his defeat is sure. And this is a key point in this parable. If Jesus only wanted you and I to focus on the wheat and the tares, he would have just spoken about the wheat and the tares. But he underscores the activity of Satan in this world. That Satan is the one that's sowing the seed of the tares. The devil is always opposed to Christ's work. He's opposed to his kingdom, and Satan is working. But as Satan is active in this world, even more so is Christ. Because he reigns as king over his kingdom, and his kingdom has come into this world. Not full 
fully consummated, not in all of its glory yet, but it's The enemy is so determined to oppose the work of Christ. And as Christ sows throughout the world, the seeds, so Satan follows on his heels and sows throughout the world his seeds. You notice there's no unique plan because he's an antichrist. He's not an innovator. He's not a creator. He, he simply seeks to piggyback the work that Christ does and he imitates it and he does the same thing just with a different name. And that is all Satan. He just takes that which is good and he corrupts it. By this, he just shows his utter hatred for the God, for God in this kingdom. He, he just seeks to upend that which God desires and God wills. He's just seeking to do the opposite. Yet he does this knowing that his doom is sure. That is hatred. He knows that he's doomed. Yet he could do it. Luke 8 and in Matthew 8, we see this with the demoniac that comes before Jesus, that man that is, is filled with a legion of demons, and he is so filled with these demons, and these demons have such control over him. You remember that he is running through the graveyard naked, and he is taking stones, and he is cutting himself, and he is screaming out in the middle of the night, and the people down below can't sleep. And you remember that the demons seek to throw him into uh, water so that he might drown himself. And they're trying to kill their very host. And you remember that Jesus arrives on the shore of the Gerasenes there. And that demoniac man comes running up when Jesus comes upon the shore. And he falls down and he bows before Jesus. Remember what that man says demons speak through his mouth. Say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. No. I know that he has all authority and all power as king. And that's very interesting acknowledgement in Matthew 8. They say this, have you come here to torment us before the time? They know. They know that there is a time. They know that it's fixed by the eternal decree of God. They know that they shall be tormented everlastingly. They don't deny it. They don't try to fight against it. They just appeal to the fact that Jesus, this isn't yet the time. No, they will lose their power. They know they will be judged. They know that they will be delivered over to eternal torment. And they are terrified. They also know that it's not yet the time. Jesus does not destroy them. He sends them into that herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs goes over the, the cliff, and the demons aren't destroyed. Have you 
wonder that. Have you noticed that? There's never an account in the Gospels where Jesus is interacting with a demon or a group of demons and he destroys them. Why not? These are your enemies. They're working against your plan. They're afflicting your people. Why don't you destroy them, Jesus? Especially there's a whole legion that is before you. You can wipe out a legion of the enemy. He never does. Not in the gospel. Because it's not the point of time. <coughs> Why is it not the appointed time? It's not because he's feeble. He could have. His earthly ministry, it's not. Because he lacks power, it's because he's patient. It's not time of concern to destroying wheat alongside the weeds. There is an appointment. There is a fixed time for evil's eradication. There is a fixed time when every demon and every devil and every cause of sin shall be punished. It's just not yet. As you and I witness evil in the world, we can't go numb to it. Surely can't rejoice with it. Here's the reality we can be hopeful with. Here's the fascinating thing about this parable. Is that when evil happens around us, or we witness something in our world, and we we can't believe that that is just, <laughs> or some suffering afflicts our life, or a series of sufferings, or a series of troubles. Usually the first question that goes through our mind is, where are you, God, and don't you care? It's so fascinating about this character. that Jesus is saying the presence of those sins should cause you to reflect upon the fact that God does indeed. That's why he's still exists. He's being patient. He's not destroying all the evil and all the wickedness and all the sin in the world at this moment because he cares for his people. Because he doesn't want to see the weak destroyed the weak. It's actually a sign of his patience towards us. Kingdom is not absent, it's present. King is not feeble, it's patient. That leads to our second point, much shorter point. The kingdom is not forceful, it's quietly effective. And Christ as king is not idle but working. Kingdom is not forceful, but it's quietly effective, and Christ as king is not idle but working. We can't always see it. Grant that. Can't always see that he's working. The sower in this parable is 
is continually sowing. It's in the present tense. It speaks of one that is ongoing. It's not as if Jesus, the Son of Man, sows once and then He sits in heaven with His fingers crossed just waiting. No, He's continually sowing. He's continually working in this world. And the growth is often indiscernible. It doesn't happen overnight. We don't always know what is happening and how Christ is working, but He is. And we don't always see it, and we don't always recognize it, we don't always know, because the kingdom doesn't come in forcefully. In the Cultural Revolution in China, there was a concerted effort to stamp out Christian faith in China. Churches were burned, churches were destroyed, Bibles were taken. If you think on this side of it, 50 years later or more, there are estimates that there could be 70 million Christians in China. Would you believe that in this possible? There's some that have estimates as high as 130 million. Would you believe? such ground that occurred? How does that happen? Because Christ is not idle. He's working. He's working by His Word and He's working through His people. Remember Diocletian, who we mentioned earlier, that Roman emperor of the 3rd and the 4th centuries, he will seek to stamp out Christianity. He will be so opposed to Christianity that when he goes into Spain and he conquers modern-day Spain, he will erect monuments to himself in Spain. And the monuments read this, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesarius, Augustine, for having extended the Roman Empire in the East and the West, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. He thought he'd wiped it out. And what he didn't know was in those catacombs, under Rome, and in little house churches, the Christian faith was spreading, and within a few decades, Christianity would dominate the Roman Empire. Who remembers Diocletian? No Roman story. I was using that as an illustration of the conference one day, and it took Grace, she was probably six years old. She saw all these books in her bed. I asked that question at a conference, and who remembers Diocletian? She went. <laughs> the conference was over, I said, what? You know the name Diocletian? She said, oh, yeah. She took me home that night and showed me the book. She read about today, the six-year-old looking at books in their beds, <laughs> and Roman historian. And the Christian faith is spread around the world. There will be those from every tongue, tribe, and nation before his throne in that last day. Because he's at work. His kingdom is present in this world, as Psalm 2 says, he has set his king. Zion. Kingdom does not come with force, it works quietly, but it works effectively. 
Remember when the mob came to arrest Jesus and take him off to his trial, and that, that Peter, feeling like he was the heir of the plan of the disciples, pulls out a sword. And he hacks off the ear of the high priest's servant. Remember what Jesus said. He goes over and he heals that man's ear, just fastened. And he tells Peter to put away his sword, and he says, you not know, Peter, if I wanted to, I could call out to my father and he could send twelve legions of angels. He wanted to come before he came. At any point. But that's not how his kingdom works. It works quietly. It goes forward by word. By you and I proclaiming his truth. By evangelizing, by sharing that faith, by living out our faith before others as a seed that is scattered throughout the world. It worked. You think he sends out those 11 disciples in that great commission to the ends of the earth, and you think everything that's opposed to them in the world. And he doesn't send them out with guns, he doesn't send them out with swords, he doesn't send them out with bureaucracy, he doesn't send them without, out with politicians and their hip pockets. He sends them out with his word and his spirit. That's it. Ends 
with them hanging above that tree and that sign that is affixed above his head that is meant to mock him, king of the Jews. Enters as king, leaves as king, because he reigns, and he shall return as king. Jesus is very clear in this parable. You notice he says, this field is his field. That is, this is his field. It is his angels, he says, that he sends to reap the harvest. He's asserting and proclaiming his divine right as king. This is his made for him, for his glory. He's coming back. Secure, established, shall be constant. On that day, that harvest day, Jesus says, He will send His angels and they will gather out of the world all the lawbreakers, those who sinned against God and did not find absolution in Christ, which is all who have not come to Christ and saved faith. He says, so cast them, and he says, the causes of sin in this world into that fiery furnace. Looking back to Daniel, preaching through that, evening service. He says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The righteous, he says, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The difference could not be more distinct could not be more drastic. Evil will be eradicated. The sinner will be in the fiery furnace and the believer will shine like the sun. Beautiful will be. No longer stained by sin. No longer marred by sin. No longer tempted by sin. Shine like the sun. C.S. Lewis has that famous comment. He gave in a sermon one time where he said, if you and I saw each other now as we will appear one day, that we would be prone to fall down and worship. Because you will be that pure. As John says, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. As Daniel prophesied in Daniel 12, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. Three quick applications. First, not neglect the kingdom. How Jesus sends this, doesn't he? He who has ears, let him hear. King Cole? Neglect it. Second, trust. Know that he's reigning now. His kingdom is present now. You watch CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and you think this world is lost and it's dying and there's no hope? No, the kingdom is present now. He's working and accomplishing his purpose. 
Jesus. You trust. You trust as He's seated above. And you trust in His reigning power. And you trust in His care and His concern for you, no matter what the trial is that you are enduring or trials that you are enduring. So, reflecting on this the other night, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 56, where the psalmist is surrounded by all of these enemies and people who are seeking to break him down, and he, he is feeling crushed under the weight of all of the trials that he's experiencing in this world, and he is struggling, and then he calls out, and he says this, he says, I know, I know that God is for me. He mentions right before that the same God that he knows that counts his tossings on his bed at night and stores all of his tears in their bottle. He says, this one, that is, he's not denying the trials, he's not denying the evil, he's not denying the struggles that he's going through, they're very real. And yet he also knows that they're not lost on God. God reigns above, he knows that God is is what it's all we And to remind ourselves of trust, especially when we're in the midst of trials. Trust Christ despite the trials of this life. Trust Christ in light of the trials of this life. Third, we wait. Wait. Great expectation. We pray wait. He will return upon the clouds with the angels of the ark. He can return at any moment, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. We wait with great anticipation. It's already sealed. It's a done deal. We're just waiting for the consummation of the kingdom to be ushered in. Many of you, uh, all students, you'll may there, some of you will walk the aisle and get that diploma. It's the event as you walk across that stage and you receive it. But the reality is, is when you already received those grades, when they were already given to you and you passed those final exams, it's already done. You're already a graduate. It's there. Seen the full consummation of it as you're dressing all the regalia of When I woke up this morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, it was dark outside, but I knew it was a new day. It's established. It was a new day. I had to wait for a few hours for that sun to come or to come out in all of its full glory for as much as we get this It was a new day. It already was. His kingdom is present now. We're just waiting for the full consummation. Pray. Wait. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You are God of the kingdom.
forward to that day that we shall see the kingdom in all of its glory as we are face to face with our King in all of his glory forever. And we shine like the stars in the sky. We are before your throne, never again battling with weeds or the terrors of this world, dwelling in a land that only has weeds, only has glory, only has holiness, only has love and joy. Our King reigns over us forever. We long for that day. So we pray with the Apostle, and quickly, Lord Jesus, come. We might be home with you forever. In Christ's holy name.